Well, church, uh, I'm going to ask a lot of you this morning, more than usual, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I am aware that sermon listening is not an easy task, especially um, where there's a commitment to preach expositionally, not, not skipping over the more difficult parts, not skipping over the, the boring sections and going in deep. Not just kind of skimming the surface. We're not just going to grab a couple of easy nuggets and kind of a 20-minute feel-good sermon we're going after. We want to know what God's Word says. We're going to take the time required to, to dig that out. And, uh, and so um, I get that that is a job to follow, to listen. And, and as a preacher, I'm trying to do my best to make that as easy as possible. Um, and I knew that would be a challenge for us this last January when we started into Exodus. There's some long, difficult stretches in Exodus. Um, it's become a familiar conversation. I, I, I had it again with someone this week uh, who's explaining to their mother, um, our church is going through Exodus. And the response is, all of it? <laughs> like, who does that? Well, we do that because we believe in God's word, because we trust him. And he says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. So we're going for all scripture. But that's hard work. And it's going to push us into some places we're not comfortable. It's going to push us in places that, that, that are challenging. And uh, I try to alleviate that in a healthy way, maybe breaking it up a little bit. We spent the last few weeks in Philippians. And I hope that was like a breath of fresh air. Let's just get back into new covenant ground and, and the, the gospel richness there. Um, but we're going back in. And, and I, I, I fear this will be the hardest of the transitions. Um, it's not the way I want it to work. But it's the way it worked out. We're jumping right back into the middle of the book of the covenant. So if you've not been kind of along for the ride, you might find yourself a little bewildered. Um, we're, we're coming right back into the laws. And so there might be some kind of grinding of the gears this morning. There was for me this week. I was surprised. I sat down to start into the sermon and was like, I just got to reset I got to kind of refocus and, and kind of get my head back into, into the law, into, into Exodus and, and what the Lord has been doing. Um, but we're going to spend the next four weeks um, wrapping up the book of the covenant. And then uh, after that, we'll go back to Philippians for a while. We'll spend five weeks in Philippians and that'll take us through to Christmas. Uh, and we're just going to kind of back and forth a little bit like that. I hope that's helpful that the transitions, uh, the challenge of transition doesn't outweigh the, the kind of freshness of moving back and forth, and we don't feel like we get bogged down. Um, but I'll be interested in your feedback as we wrap that up. But uh, today we're, we're back into it. So Exodus chapter 22, open your Bible with me. If you don't have a Bible, um, slip up your hand, and Terry would love to put one into that hand. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap in front of you. Uh, it's all about God's Word. I, I have nothing of value. Um, I have nothing in myself. And so we are together coming to God's word to see what God has to say to us together. And, uh, and I preach these things to me uh, as much as to anyone, if not more. So Exodus 22, remember God has, has brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and across the Red Sea. And it was this, this glorious victory. And he told them, chapter 19, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And this is a 
crucial statement. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what God is doing. He's building this holy nation, a a kingdom, a nation of priests. A whole country of people who have a a unique access to God and, and, and then who represent God to the world around them. So the other nations would would look at Israel and they would see, who is this God? God gave them then, right following that statement, the Ten Commandments. And and, and the Ten Commandments, as you you dig into it, is not just ten rules. It's this amazing revelation of the character of God. This is who I am. And the Lord gave that to the people of Israel. He spoke from the mountain as they gathered around with thunder and lightning and the sound of loud trumpets. And after hearing that, um, the people cried out, enough, we can't take it anymore. We're we're terrified to, to hear from this God. Moses, you go speak with God and tell us what he says. Um, we're scared we're going to be consumed by the voice of this God. So Moses went up the mountain and the people returned to their tents And the Lord continued to speak to Moses, and he gave them these laws, which he wrote down. And so actually we get to the end of this section in chapter 24. Moses brings them what he calls, it's not my name for it, the book of the covenant. This is it. This is how they're to live as God's holy nation, as this kingdom of priests in a dark world. So the the Ten Commandments, if you think about it, is like their constitution. Um, This is the kind of key principles and the book of the covenant flowing out of that is like case law. Here's how to apply it in in specific kind of day-to-day situations. But we need to remember as we go through this, again, kind of resetting to this old covenant context, um, this covenant is the covenant, the contract that God made with Israel through Moses. We are not the primary recipients. This isn't written to us. We don't don't make a one-to-one connection as we read through this and say, oh, we need to do this. Um, This is old covenant. We're under the new covenant. There's a lot of bad theology that comes out of taking the laws of the old covenant and trying to shoehorn them into the new covenant or just as dangerous, taking the promises of the old covenant, saying that promise is for me. No, that promise was given to Joshua. That promise was given to Israel. Now, we can learn things about God, but, but we're not the direct recipient. So we need to understand that as we move along. Um, but maybe you can you know, breathe out. It's okay that you had bacon for breakfast this morning. Good news. Um, it's okay that you're wearing a polyester blend shirt, um, that, you didn't, that you didn't observe the Sabbath yesterday. Um, we're not going to stone anybody here. This, this is good. But these laws, and, and even the Ten Commandments, they're not directly binding on us. We're under the law of Christ, the new covenant, the new testament. But here's the beautiful thing, and, and here's why. So that maybe the question might be asked, so what are you doing preaching the laws? If it's not to us, leave it alone. No. No, Jesus says, Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that tell us? about the old covenant law. The reason those laws are no longer binding is not because Jesus said they're abolished. It's not because Jesus said they're they're wiped out, but because he fulfilled them. That tells us something about the, the primary purpose of the law. It was never about simple, strict obedience. Now, they were called to obey them, 
But the primary purpose of the law was to reveal the character of God. It was to point to Christ. And so even though the Old Testament is is no longer in effect legally over us, it still has great value for us because its primary purpose of helping us see who God is and, and pointing us forward to Christ is still very much in effect. To the note takers this morning, I apologize This sermon defied my attempts to organize neatly and categorize. Um, We're going to just bump through somewhat. Basically, um, we're going to look at at two basic categories. Um, This series that we're in, looking at the the book of the covenant, is called The Lord in the Law, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these laws and what they meant to Israel and what they meant to them in that day. We'll make a couple of kind of practical applications along the way. And once we've done that grind of the hard work, then we'll, then we'll ask, how do we see the Lord here? How does this point us forward to Christ? So we've already looked at a bunch of laws. The, the first portion of the book of the covenant, slavery and manslaughter and murder and dangerous animals and open pits. And if you're thinking, how on earth does that point to Christ? It was an adventure. It was exciting. You missed out. Go back. Those sermons are on the website and they do point gloriously to Christ. But this morning we, we move forward into a section that's typically labeled social justice laws. These are the laws about fairness and and the treatment of the weak and the vulnerable in society and the the system of the courts. And and let me just read this section for us and then we'll walk through it. So I'm going to start in chapter 22, verse 16, and we'll go right through to 23, verse 9. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse the ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me, and you shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. 
nor should you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So we have a lot of ground to cover. There's some stuff in there we need to unpack. Um, This first section of of laws, verses 16 and 17, are are about the seduced virgin. It's often debated. um, Do these belong as social justice laws focused on the virgin who who was weak, who was vulnerable, who needed social protection? Or is this a property law going with the ones before it, focused on the father who who lost the value that he had uh, in his daughter? And and that rubs us a little bit the wrong way in our modern sensibilities. But in their culture, um, it kind of fits in both categories. Uh, A daughter was something of great value to the father. And, And that wasn't a demeaning thing. But if you wanted to marry a young lady, you had to give a sizable amount of money to her father because she would leave his home and, and become part of your household. And, and, you would, and you would essentially offer that money as compensation. But the value of a daughter was, was based on her virginity. That, that's what made her desirable and, and marryable. So it was a huge deal. If someone were to seduce that daughter would selfishly dishonor her and dishonor her father and and dishonor the the institution of marriage, essentially rob his household of that value by taking away her virginity without committing to marriage. Now, this is a consensual relationship. This isn't rape here. But notice the responsibility lies clearly on the man. And, And young men, I think you need to take something from this. It is your responsibility to honor the woman that you're interested in. You protect, you guard her purity. How dare you make her say no to you? That's turning it around. You protect her. It's your responsibility. And if the man failed to do that, he owed the father for what was taken. He had to pay the full bride price. Now, if the father approved, they would be married. But that father had the right to say, no. No, he owes me what he has taken, but it would be better for my daughter to live even a life of singleness than to be married to this man. Uh, I will not consent. And then she would remain in the father's household. But she had been disgraced in the eyes of society. She had been devalued, considered unmarriable, And so, again, this kind of rubs our society the wrong way. But the goal of this law was to protect these women, to keep men from from using a woman for sex and not providing a a loving, stable context of marriage, not being willing to to commit to that. And and that commitment was intentionally raised high that you would work for years to, to secure that bride price. 
to compensate the Father and to show your commitment to provide. Something our society could pay attention to, this, the significance of that, that household and that, that level of commitment. These next three laws are, are lumped together, seem maybe a little bit random, but they are connected. Verses 18 to 20 are about false worship. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So again, at first glance, a little bit odd. What are these, what are these doing here? But actually, um, all three of these are applications of the first and second commandment. The sorceress here is a very broad term. Uh, it speaks of any kind of occult practices. Um, talks about this is calling on demons or spirits or, or the magic arts, either to maybe know the future or to manipulate the future. Verse 19, um, laying with an animal. Yes, that speaks of the worst possible interpretation of those words. Um, but this wasn't just morally reprehensible. It was also a pagan practice of worship. It was something they would use often connected to fertility, but it was their, their way of manipulating their gods. This was idolatry. This was trying to do something physical to change God's disposition toward you. And so uh, it's outlaw. It's, it's morally wrong. There's a crossing of the barriers that God set throughout creation as he clearly makes man and woman separate from the animal kingdom and puts them together in that sacred union of marriage. Um, but it was also had become this, this act of false worship, of idolatry. And then verse 20 is kind of this blanket. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. The language is kind of um, Interesting there, if they, if they sacrifice to someone else, they will be sacrificed to God. And uh, any God, any spirit other than the Lord um, was outlawed. And specifically, the one who did this was to be devoted to destruction. The word here is haram. Uh, it's a very strong word. Um, literally, they're to be put under the ban. And uh, this, is, this is the phrase that's used throughout the book of Joshua. As Israel moves into Canaanite country, and the, the Israelites go into these cities and the Lord says, you shall put them under the ban. They were to be totally wiped out. Those cities were to be destroyed. Man, woman, and child cleaned out. That's what God's talking about here. He's saying you can't come to God any other way. You can't go behind God's back. You can't look for some other power to maybe help you. You can't manipulate God. You can't trick him or, or find some other way to change his mind. Anyone who tries will be wiped out. They will be under God's fiercest condemnation. Their society um, was to be based on faith in the Lord, trusting him alone and coming to him in his prescribed way. You don't have the right to say, well, this is my way to God. This is the way I worship God. No, God says, this is the way you shall worship me and no other. You come to him his way. Verses 21 through 28 then get more kind of neatly into these social issues. These laws protect four different types of vulnerable people. The sojourner in verse 21 the widow and the fatherless in verse 22, and then the poor in verse 25. So let's just, 
Look at what these laws required of Israel. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Sojourner is not a word we use much anymore. I don't know if you guys use that at the gas station. Oh, hello, are you a, are you a sojourner to this area? Um, you, you might get some funny looks. Um, but it means foreigner, traveler. These laws are, are looking forward to when Israel would be established in the promised land. They still have 40 years of wandering before they get there. They don't know that yet. But a sojourner was someone who lived among them, um, but wasn't a landowner and didn't have family network and, and, and the strength of that kind of social connection, they were incredibly vulnerable. And in fact, in most of the countries that surrounded Israel, a sojourner had no legal rights. They, they weren't considered under the law. The law wasn't for them. The law was for the citizens. And so a sojourner was incredibly vulnerable. If you were traveling, you're on your own. Your protection is up to you. And, and if somebody takes advantage of you, well... What are you going to do about it? You don't have a voice here. The same was true with widows and the fatherless. The court was a place for men. The, the father of the family would, would provide for and protect and represent his family. And, and so verse 22 says, you should not mistreat any widow or fatherless because that would be incredibly easy to do. You could trample over their rights and, and nobody would even listen. Nobody would care. Some woman comes into court, some child without his father comes in saying, you know, so-and-so took advantage of me. It, just, it wouldn't even have been heard in the cultures around them and, and even to some degree in the Jewish culture. They couldn't fight back. Verse 23, the Lord warns, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, now they don't have a family to support them. They don't have leverage in society, but the Lord says, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children will become fatherless. Notice the language here. When Israel was oppressed in Egypt, they were abused and, and overrun and, and Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, where this seismic shift, this is the, the dawning of hope in this book. It had been dark, and there's the oppression and the, and the death and the destruction. And then this verse 2, 23, during those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And the cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and here it is, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard, God remembered, God saw and God knew. And if you remember, we, we trace that word heard through the next few chapters. It's a significant word. Uh, it, it's not just a listening, but it's listening in order to act. There's a response built right into it. And God is saying, if you become oppressors of the weak, I will hear them the same way I heard you, and I will treat you the way I treated Egypt. I will destroy you. Verse 25 then turns to the poor. This is specific to the poor. Let me read verses 25 to 27 again for us. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, 
You shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for it is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Again, this is specific to the poor. The reason this person is borrowing money is not for a, not for a business venture. It's not for a, a vacation or a new car. Um, it's to survive. It's to live. And so they were not to exact interest. They were not to be like the money lenders who would, who would take advantage of somebody's desperation and use it for their own profit. Sure, I'll, I'll give you money to eat, but it's going to be 50% interest. No. No, they weren't to collect interest from their brothers and sisters in Israel. The same is true of these next verses, 26 and 27, about the cloak. Um, it was customary in that day when you, when you gave a loan, you would take something in security, something of value to that person, and they would get it back when they paid the loan. It was, it was collateral. And if someone gave you their cloak as security, that tells you something. Um, that means they have nothing else. Their cloak was their, their last precious thing. They're destitute. And, and the assumption there is it's his jacket. He's, he's homeless. What else is he going to sleep in? So you're lending money to a person who's so poor that all they can give you in security is the, is the very literal cloak off their back. You're to return it to them before nightfall. You might be wondering, well, that doesn't really do very much in securing the loan then, does it? And I think you you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly the point. They were to be more concerned about the welfare of the poor and protecting them than about getting their own money back. And again, the Lord punctuates this saying in verse 27, If he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate And just that sentence, I will hear. They know what he's talking about. God cares about the poor. God cares about the weak and the downtrodden, the helpless, the broken. These commands, the the principles behind them, absolutely carry right through to the New Testament, right? James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you you defile your so-called religion if you're not caring for the weak and the vulnerable around you. Luke 6, 34, Jesus says, And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, if you're collecting from those that you're lending to, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, listen to this, lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. God is merciful. God is compassionate, generous to the needy, expecting nothing in repayment, even generous to those who are ungrateful and evil. What a God. If we're going to be His children, if we're going to be His kingdom of priests in this world, 
How ought we to handle our money? How ought we to treat those in need around us? But he'll just waste it. There's no way he'll pay me back. Is that our highest concern? It ought not be. Don't take advantage of the weak, the vulnerable. Lend to those in need without expecting to be repaid. Be compassionate. Our God is compassionate. We're to be called His children. Verse 28, then I think is a bit of a linking verse between these, this section and the next. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And this is partly looking back at the last verses. Saying, if you take advantage of the poor, if you oppress the vulnerable, the weak, um, it's an insult to God. You as his holy people are, are representing him poorly. You're insulting him. You're giving him a bad reputation. Uh, and it's a curse to the rule of your people. You're, you're undermining and making his job difficult. So we're not to speak against or fight against God or any ruler of the people in word or in deed, elections pending, reminded again, there's no authority except that which God has instituted. We ought not to curse the rule of our people. He's there, whoever it may be, whether your, your vote wins or not, it's God's vote wins, and we ought to be respectful, duly submissive to everything that we're called to do that doesn't directly contradict God's word honoring those placed above us. Then he goes on to say, not only should you not dishonor God by taking from the poor, but you should not dishonor God by failing to give to him in worship. Verses 29 to 31 are about giving to the Lord. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat of any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. They were to sacrifice to the Lord the, the first fruits from their fields, the first ripe portion of their crop and a portion of the wine that flowed out of their wine press and the firstborn of their own children and the firstborn of their livestock. These laws aren't fully described here. They're, they're already in place. The firstborn son, they were, they were to sacrifice to God, but, but they were to redeem it. So they were to sacrifice a lamb in his place. But this was an act of saying, God, all that I have is yours. That, that, that 10% is emblematic of my, my sacrifice to God, my giving to God, all that I have. And, and, that, and that's the, the purpose of this, from your, from your fields and your wine press, from your flocks, from your very own family. It's all his. And this culminates in verse 31. You yourself shall be consecrated to me set apart, sacrificed to God. Romans 12, we're living sacrifices to Him. The addition of the command on the end here, not to eat an animal that has been killed by another animal in the field. Um, well, frankly, everyone scratches their head. I don't know why that's there. 
Um, it's baffling. I wrestled with it and wrestled with it and finally went to a few commentaries and found that they're all doing the same thing. Um, my best guess is, and I don't think this is too far off, that it's there kind of emblematic of all of the purity laws. There's, there's death, there's unclean food. It it's, would be the eating of blood. It wouldn't have been properly butchered. And, and so I think he's saying, you're consecrated to me, so don't make yourselves impure. Live within this, this context of purity that I'm laying out because you're a holy nation. But the specific emphasis here is to give to the Lord. Give him everything. Don't hold back from your harvest and your livestock, from your wine press, from your own family. Worship him with everything that you have. Some people get all technical today as we talk about giving. We talk about the tithe, right? Give a 10% of your income. We ask questions like, well, should I tithe on my before taxes income or my after taxes income? What about the childcare benefit? Do I have to, do I have to tithe on, on that? How, where, does that where does that fall in? Let me help you with that. If you're asking that question, you're already wrong. You've missed it. It's the wrong question altogether. Now, first of all, tithing, old covenant, old covenant practice. Not, it doesn't apply to the New Testament. Tithing was for the priests and the, and the temple. And, and actually, if you want to follow the tithe and say, I think we should still do that, then, then you, I would encourage you maybe. Um, you need to look at the bigger picture. They, they would be giving like between 20 to 25% once you kind of package everything together. That would be okay. I wouldn't say anything if that was your plan. Uh, but here's the point. The New Testament tithe isn't give me 10%, it's give generously. Generously. It's not asking, what exactly must I give? Rephrase that question. How little can I give and still be okay? Isn't that it? Otherwise, we would just round up on everything. But we're asking, how little can I give and still be okay? Now, the call in the New Testament is to give the Lord with a generous heart and, and sacrificial giving. And, and, and that's here too, isn't it? Don't delay. Don't drag your feet. Be eager to give. And don't, don't give just from your, from your crop and say that's enough. No, give from your, from your field and your wine press and your livestock. Give generously to the Lord. The model practice of the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Um, chapter 8, verse 2 speaks of the Macedonian church. The Philippians would be one of those. In their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Don't miss the irony there. Their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. It's the widow's might. It's that heart that has little but gives much. For they gave according to their means, Paul says, and I can testify beyond their means of their own accord. They're not pressed or pushed into this. It's their own heart. Listen to this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this was not as we expected, but they gave themselves, and here's this beautiful picture, first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So they gave themselves to the Lord. God, all I am, all I have is yours. And then God says, well, then give of some of your money. And they said, absolutely. First to the Lord and then to Paul in supporting the church. 
Down in verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, just a few verses down, you know this very familiar passage. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give what he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Oh, the question of 10% of net or gross just becomes nonsense. Do you believe this? If we sow generously, we'll reap generously. Mark, that's a good farming principle, right? You put lots of seeds in, you get lots of crops out, typically, unless it snows in September. Um, There's no snow in September in God's kingdom. He says, sow generously and you'll reap generously. How much can I give? How much can I store up my treasure in heaven? That's the heart that God is asking for. Lavish, sacrificial, joyful giving from the heart. It's not my place to say, hey, why are you only giving, you know, 9.5%? Give what God calls you to give. Give generously and, and eagerly. I hate to move on already, but we have so much ground to cover, and I'm already ad-libbing, so we're going to be pushing the clock here. Uh, Chapter 23 uh, moves into uh, a more legal context. We get ourselves into the court system. Um, Speaking about this this idea of justice, verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. Pretty straightforward. You should not join hands with a wicked man. Better maybe a guilty man, a man that's condemned, and you would shake hands with him to be a malicious witness. Let's, let's come up with a story that's going to get you off, and I'll, I'll back you up on it. Verse 2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. I think this one is poignant for us. doesn't matter what the majority says. Majority does not decide morality, right? Because the government says something is right, doesn't make it right. What, we, what he's saying here is it doesn't matter what feels right. What everybody else is kind of going along with. This, this feels like the right thing to do. No, he says stand for truth. Even if it's unpopular, even if you're the only one and everyone else is against you, stand for truth. Don't go with the many in order to pervert justice. And verse 3 gives an example of of what that might look like. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Boy, we could, we could get into some real political science questions here. Of a poor man. Someone that you pity. You feel sorry for him. He's had a, he's had a hard life. He's had the odds stacked against him. And he's in a lawsuit against a rich man. A man that maybe you, you wouldn't mind seeing him lose a few thousand dollars. It wouldn't hurt him. It might be good for him doesn't matter. You stand for what's right. You stand for justice. Even if it goes against the poor man that your heart pities and you feel bad for him, you'd love to see him be be helped out. But God says, not at the expense of justice. Don't pervert justice to help the poor. Verse 4 and 5 takes the same issue, but from the opposite side. Not only should you stand for justice, even when it hurts someone that you pity, but you should stand for justice. You should do what's right, even if it helps someone that you hate. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you say, serves him right. He deserved it, right? 
I found so-and-so's credit card. Ching. Right? Oh, my enemy lost this. My gain. No, he says you return it. You take it back. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you, you, you see your neighbor who hates you and his truck is broken down, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Help him. Help him. Again, Jesus picks up on the same theme, the Sermon of the Mount, right? And it's more than just do what is right for your enemy. Jesus, as he loves to do, just pushes it that much further. Love your enemy. Luke 6, I say to you, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That's not easy. It's a, it's a great little verse that we all kind of know, but the practice of that stings. To actively do right, to actively love those who hate you, who would oppose you, who would love to see you hurt. Verse 6 then is essentially the reverse of verse 3. Don't do favor for the poor man that you pity. But then, don't deny him justice because he's helpless. Don't bowl over him because there's nothing he can do about it. It's going back to the weak and the downtrodden. Verse 7, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. This again is to judges. Don't, don't condemn an innocent man for, for whatever reason. Maybe don't condemn too quickly because God will not let you off the hook. God will not pervert justice for your sake. And verse 8, don't pervert justice by taking a bribe. Um, again, pretty straightforward. So these are the laws. This is what God has placed on Israel and saying, this is how you're to live as my holy nation, my, my nation of priests. Most of them have, have some semblance of logic to us. We understand them. They seem maybe even have some good practical applications for us today. The, the principles behind many of them are carried forward in the New Testament. But I want to go beyond that. We've done the hard work. This is the, this is the payoff. How do these laws point us to the Lord? How do we see grace here? How does this point us to Jesus in such a way that he can say, I came to fulfill that. I came to answer the questions that that was begging. Well, look at verse 9. I think that's the, the tip off. The Lord flips the script on them. All of these laws that he's been giving are speaking to the strong about the weak. And that's always the way we think about ourselves, isn't it? And then in verse 9, he says, oh, don't forget, you're the weak. Right? You shall not oppress the sojourner. You know the heart of the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you remember where you came from? Do you remember who you are and what I've done? That was you. All those weak people that you've been looking down on, that I've been charging you to care for, that was you. Each of these images reminds us of how God has dealt with us when we were 
devalued and discarded, when we were downtrodden, when we were vulnerable, when we were even wicked. Now, granted, not everything I'm about to say is found right in these verses, okay? These are not gospel verses. These are law verses. However, when we take these laws and we put them in the bigger picture of redemptive history, look at the story of what God is doing in the different images and how he uses some of these images elsewhere in Scripture, and we begin to build that out, we find how they fit in this bigger picture. And we tie together some of these, some of these biblical themes, and we see the gospel is, is weaved in and out through this. And let me show you what I'm looking at. We started back in chapter 22, verses 1 to 17, about the seduced virgin. She's had her value stolen. She's now despised and discarded and worthless. And God is saying, you were that. You were that seduced virgin. We don't have time to go there right now, but passages like Jeremiah 2 and and Ezekiel 16 and the the whole book of Hosea builds out this this picture of of Israel's sin being like the sin of adultery. You were betrothed to the Lord. You you belonged to Him. You, You were supposed to be His wife to find your joy in this sacred, exclusive, intimate relationship with the Lord. But you were seduced. Willingly participating. You gave yourself to sin and and you became devalued. You're disgraced. The one that nobody wants, that's us in our sin. Looking then at verses 18 to 20. The law is about sorcery and bestiality and sacrifices to false gods. God will not be manipulated. There's no way around God. No sorcery, no bribing God. No legalism or creative sacrifice. None of this, maybe my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. It's not going to work. No sincere Muslim or or truly believing Hindu or really good moralist is going to have any place before God. In fact, anyone who tries to fix their spiritual condition before the Lord by any other way except what God has prescribed will find themselves under his harshest judgment, under the ban, his relentless wrath. God will not be manipulated. But... Verses 21 and 27. God is the compassionate God who hears the cry of those who call out to him. You're the sojourner. You're the foreigner. The widowed woman, the fatherless child, the the hopelessly poor. You are enslaved by your own sinfulness. Quite willingly, it's not as if we're victims only of our sin, but we are slaves to sin. Not knowing, not not able to to break its power. And we're in this desolate, desperate state with no hope and no one to run to and no one to help us. That's us. Sin is a cruel master and his wages are death. But God says, verse 23, if they will cry out to me, I will surely hear. Verse 27, I will hear for I am compassionate. God says, I care about those who are desperate and desolate, who are downtrodden and weak. 
Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. This tells us about the character of God, who he is, and that matters for us in a huge way. And Romans 10, 13 clarifies this perfectly. If there's any doubt, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a glorious hope. Everyone who who cries out to God will be saved. He's the rescuer of those who call out to him. He is the avenger of the weak. This is our God. This is who he is in his very nature. He's a compassionate God. Do you know that God? Do you see that side of God? Now looking at chapter 23 again. He is still the God of justice. Sin is still sin. Let's not brush over this too quickly. Sin must be, will be punished. Verse 3, you shall not be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. We've twisted this. We, We talk about God as if he ought to pity us. We demand mercy. Somehow that God owes it to us that God should put justice aside for our sake. No, we deserve wrath. The fact that we're poor and to be pitied doesn't change that. Even God's compassion doesn't change that. The fact that we we feel like God should really just forgive us, that seems right to me. God says, no, justice must be, will be done. Sin will receive its full payment, its full penalty. Verse 7, God will not acquit the guilty. And that right there is the greatest question that builds throughout the Old Testament. There's answers there if you have eyes to see it. But, but for thousands of years, that question hung in the air. How is God just and the God who forgives sin? You can't do both. It's unjust to forgive sin. It's not right. Thousands of years, that question hangs in the air until one day the virgin is with child and the angel comes to her and says, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. What? How can this be? Jesus, not only the perfect man, but God himself descended into flesh. The judge come down off the throne and sitting in the accused seat living that perfect righteous life that God required, but then dying on the cross. Not showing us how to live. It's too late for that. But paying the penalty that we deserved. Taking the righteous wrath of God against himself. And so as Paul puts it so beautifully, Romans 3.26, this was to show that his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. That he can both uphold the law and forgive sin and not be internally contradicting his own character. It's not a bribe. It's not a perverting of justice. That's become kind of a common thing. No, God's love overruled God's law. No, it didn't. God's law and his justice stand just as firm as they ever have. But he fulfilled it. He paid the full payment on our behalf. 
Jesus fulfilled the law. And the law reveals the character of God. And it points us forward and it begs this question that Jesus answers. Go back then to chapter 22. If you're paying attention, I skipped some verses. You're wondering, what about those? What do we do with verses 29 to 31? It's our response. We worship Him with everything. Give Him all that we have. Don't hold back. Don't delay. We are sacrificed then to His glory in in joyful response to what He's done for us. He's rescued us. He's he's pulled us out of the pit, out of the darkness, out of that place of, of desperation and helplessness. He's become our protector. He set us free from our master and made us his own. And so our obedience then is in response to what he has done, right? This is, this is crucial to the logic of the law. We so quickly want to make the law something we do to earn God's favor. It always goes the other way. God says, I rescued you. I saved you. Therefore, go and live according to my way. He pulled them out of Egypt. He made them his people. And then he gave them his law. Then he tells them, this is how you ought to live. The law is not how to become God's people. It's how to live now that we are God's people. And it's the same here. This is what verse 9 is all about. You shall not oppress the sojourner, for you were the sojourner in the land of Egypt. Don't don't treat people that way because you were that, and I rescued you, I saved you. So how do we learn to live in compassion? As we look at some of the the practical applications of this, how do I I love my neighbor? How How do I... how do I open my hand that's clung so tightly to the money that God has given me and, and lend without expecting return? That's, that's counter to my heart. How do, I, how do I love those that I need to love the way that God calls me to do? Do I just need to pull myself up by the bootstraps? Do I just need to, to make this act of the will? I need to do it? It's not an act of the will forcing ourselves to try and do what's right. It's an act of the memory. It's remembering the gospel. It's living and breathing what Christ has done for us. You know the heart of a sojourner. You know what it means to be rescued, to be shown mercy, to be shown grace. Live in that and grace will flow out. It's as as Lee Lewis said at the conference this weekend, it's gospel in, gospel out. Invite the worship team to come as we just kind of turn to considering again, pondering more deeply. What does it mean that I was the seduced virgin, disgraced and discarded? That I was the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless, the poor, the wretched, the helpless, without hope. I was the enemy of God and he heard my cry. He put his love on me. He satisfied the righteous demands of his law on my behalf and made me his own. That's the God we worship. That's what the law points us gloriously forward to. So would you stand? Let's join together worshiping this great God and and increasing in wonder and awe of this glorious gospel. Let me pray. Father, thank you.
Thank you for your law. Thank you that it brings us to our knees to see our hopeless situation and our desperate need for you. And Lord, thank you that mingled through that law is glimpses of your great and glorious gospel, that you are a God of compassion, that you are a God who will rescue those who cry out to him. Lord, we need you. God, I pray that every person in this room would have a right understanding of who they are, both in our sinfulness from which we came and what it means to be in Christ. Those who the sun sets free are free indeed. God, that we would live in that and as a joyful overflow, enamored with the wonder of your gospel, we would live as this new covenant kingdom of priests, consecrated to you everything that we have for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name.